2: hi there my name is Zach Twomley you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project this is when diplomacy fails and yeah this is episode 26 this is a very large episode it contains very detailed examinations of only a few days the 20th the 24th of January 1919, to be precise. Now, you might be wondering, why on earth do we need to go into so much detail for such a small number of days? Well, officially, the Paris Peace Conference and the history of that event is made up by big people. Very famous people. And very famous issues and very well-known discussions, debates, etc. It's an exciting, vibrant affair And if you look it up, then you'll see the big three standing there smiling back at you or glaring back at you, depending what point of the conference it was. But events like these, these spans of days, remind us that the Paris Peace Conference wasn't always like that. In fact, it was made up by the mundane, the small issues, the daily grind. And the daily grind is what we're all about here in When Diplomacy Fails, because that is what helps us to get to the heart of the story. Examinations like these are possible because When Diplomacy Fails podcast is my job. It's a big part of my job other than lecturing, and it means that I get to deliver examinations in depth like these, thanks to the support you guys give me by going over on Patreon. So if you would like to support this podcast, if you would like to make sure that examinations like these are possible, and history in this amount of detail continues to flow your way, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails support us at different levels, and get different things back in return, ranging from content, to playing the delegation game, to merchandise. It's all there. All you have to do is click on the link in the description below, or just search When Diplomacy Fails, Patreon and Google, or Bing, wherever else you search things. You've been great, guys, and I really hope you enjoy this episode, because, yeah, it's a pretty good one. And to those of you playing the delegation game and enjoying it, thanks so much as well. The American army is fighting for you to the end, that the high ideals for which America stands may endure upon the earth. I
1: earnestly
0: entreat my countrymen to pause before they rush Hitler into this revolutionary. Which may well be irretrievable.
1: I know that it is hard for Americans to realize the magnitude of the war in which we are involved. France and Italy
0: between them have made West people of their and have all seen the whole field of international relationships in perilous confusion.
2: We're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 26. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates all to episode 26 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. In the previous episode, we examined a significant epoch in my homeland's history, but we're going to put a pin in that transforming island for the moment to focus on something of increasing relevance to our narrative by the last week of January 1919. With the Paris Peace Conference officially opened, it made sense that the workload and the meetings of the relevant VIPs would increase, and increase they certainly did. The first stop off on this great quest to reimagine the world, with the world's cooperation, would be seen in the effort to create some version of the League of Nations, which Woodrow Wilson would be proud of. The 25th of January was the day chosen to represent this mission to the entire body of the Paris Peace Conference, but before that destination was reached, the different nations would have to get there first. Problems and misconceptions would have to be sorted through, definitions and terms would have to be properly explained and understood, a challenge all by itself, and in the meantime, the news coming in from the world, which refused to sit still, would all have to be sifted through and grasped in its full meaning. So, there was much work to be done when the Council of Ten, or Supreme Council, opened its doors on the 20th of January 1919, Officially for the first time, since previous meetings and the week before, had been attended by the Supreme War Council, which did not officially have the power to craft treaties or decide on anything. The Council of Ten, or Supreme Council, you can use the two terms interchangeably, did have that power, and it remained to be seen now what would be done with it, and whether Woodrow Wilson would be enough to leverage the influence he believed he had to effect a mass demonstration of cooperation in its favour. The League of Nations and the New World, which the American president believed the old world wanted, was up for grabs, but these next few days were to show that the task was to be by no means as simple or as amicable as Wilson had hoped. The ice had been broken, of course, but this grand conference, upon which so many hopes had been pinned, was now in session, and it was time to fulfil the promises that had been made. The first great test was now ahead of all those that attended. So let's see how they get on, as I take you to this four-day period of the 20th to 24th of January 1919, starting with the 20th. Historians like their comparisons. In particular, comparing the outbreak of the First with the outbreak of the Second War has proved an interesting and not always pointless pastime. Indeed, we ourselves have compared the aftermath of World War I and World War II and noted that in many respects the two aftermaths were remarkably similar, a fact which is not often very well expressed. Both dealt with the dislocation of the continent, masses of dead and wounded, the question of borders, of minorities within majority populations, of disease, of famine, of the paralyzing fear that this all might happen again. Another element which repeated itself, we noted, was that of the looming threat which Bolshevik Russia represented. By 1945, the Allies likely felt that they understood the Soviets better than in 1919. The Soviets were indeed a key player in the Allied camp, and in recent decades the true extent of the Soviet contribution and sacrifice towards the defeat of the Nazis has become more completely appreciated. More recently, historians have even commented on the similarity between the Cold War post-1945 and the Cold War post-1919, with special reference to Woodrow Wilson's errors in dealing with Lenin's new regime contributing to the cooling of Soviet-American relations. A striking difference between 1919 and 1945 also featured the Soviets, or more accurately, did not feature the Soviets. You see, in 1945, where Stalin ensured that his empire played a central role in the gatherings of the Big Three, 25 years before, Russia was a non-entity and the most notable absence of the entire Paris Peace Conference. This, of course, didn't stop the Allies from negotiating or talking with the Soviets. In March, as we'll see, a secret delegation would be sent to Russia on a fact-finding mission. Yet the collapse and exit from the War of Russia in 1917 had thrown up some profound complications for the Allies, not least of which was the emergence of several nation-states in the Baltic and East-Central Europe. It was difficult to know for sure where Russia's borders actually ended, since these new states claimed vast portions of the old Tsarist Empire, and recent treaties like Brest-Litovsk had blurred the lines further. In a bid to bolster the flagging spirit of the Russians, the Allies had sent troops to Russia in late 1917. With the eruption of revolution and the onset of the civil war, though, these troops found that, well, they had nothing really to do. Where once the Bolsheviks had been a minority, now they were the only united force in the sprawling Russian country, inhabited by Republicans, Royalists, Anarchists, Disillusioned Socialists, Liberal Democrats and straightforward Russian Nationalists. These elements could not band together, thus creating a strategic situation which greatly favoured the Bolsheviks and enabled them to take over vast swathes of the country. But the country wasn't all theirs. They held the centre, the key portions around Moscow and St. Petersburg, but different theatres of the war became increasingly hot over the next couple of years. In March 1918, Lenin's Bolsheviks had at least made peace with Germany, but the resulting power vacuum found in the Russian withdrawal, followed by the German withdrawal six months later, created anarchy and confusion on several fronts. Far too much was going on for us to cover it all, but suffice to say, in the Baltic, in the Caucasus, along the eastern border with Poland and Ukraine, and through allied intervention in Serbia, the Bolsheviks were kept very busy indeed. Related civil conflicts in neighbouring territories which mirrored the larger conflict in Russia, such as in the Ukraine or in Finland, also proved particularly brutal. This serves as a sort of background to the strategic situation that Russia was in by early 1919, but the situation was exacerbated above all by myth and rumour. Since summer 1918, Allied representatives had been flooding out of Russia, and before the year's end, the vast majority of the world's newspaper correspondents had also fled the country. In the interim during the Civil War, roads had been destroyed and railways had been cut, telegraph lines were dug up or knocked down and severed by the opposing side, In the confusion, soldiers sometimes cut their own lines. The result of all this conflict and confusion in Russia was such that the Allies knew next to nothing about it. The only route for information to flow west about Russia was through the Bolsheviks' representative in Stockholm, Sweden. During the conference, Margaret Macmillan wrote, the peacemakers knew as much about Russia as they did about the far side of the moon. Due to this lack of knowledge, It is not surprising that the subject of Russia took up most of the time of the Supreme Council on the first full day in session since the opening of the Paris Peace Conference. The mysterious state of Russia and the image of its Bolshevik tentacles reaching out to pull civilized states under the waves contributed to further myths about its power. The former French ambassador to Russia, who had lived in the Siberian pocket for over a year before returning home and consequently knew very little of the actual state of the central Soviet government, Provided those assembled with several interesting nuggets of information. One of these that the French ambassador had was all the well to do classes, including the richer peasants and working men, were against the Bolsheviks. This is kind of a strange thing to say. The French ambassador might have claimed that this was the case, but if it was, one could be forgiven for asking how the Russian Revolution and the spread of Bolshevism had proceeded so rapidly and the revolution how it had been so successful when asked about the size of the red army the former ambassador noted that the figure of one million men had been bandied about in the press but well, that this was grossly inaccurate and that furthermore this army was not composed of real soldiers but of men driven by famine to take service they did not want to fight and they would certainly dissolve if faced by regular troops The journey of Russia's internal stately organs towards revolutionary institutions was also examined. It was noted that when the Russian people neglected to return sufficient Bolsheviks to the Russian assembly, this assembly was dissolved and replaced by a gathering of delegates from Soviets, Soviet councils that is, scattered across the country. This was done over summer 1918 and by the end of that season, these Soviet delegates had created a new constitution and a new set of constitutions which expressed their extreme views for all the world to see. One example given was Article 65 that the Soviets had created, which enacted that all persons profiting by the results of other men's labour, all living on private income or trading for private interests, monks, spiritual servants of the church, agents of the former police, and members of the reigning house of Russia, were, even if otherwise eligible, debarred from voting or being elected. This, in fact, put all these classes outside of the law. It was also noted that all press organs, save for Pravda, were suppressed, ostensibly in the name of national security, whereas all other hostile factions were to be destroyed in the meantime. Hence, the former ambassador concluded, it could fairly be said that the Bolshevik government set up inequality as a principle. This principle could not be accepted by the allied governments, which had fought for freedom and equality. It might be asked how such a regime was able to persist at all. The answer was by terror alone. The majority of the people were both disarmed and torpid. The meeting of the Supreme Council on the 20th of January then adjourned, apparently full up with the Russian business, on the understanding that they would meet again the same time tomorrow morning, back at the Cay d'Orsay. The next day on the 21st, who should be back to his old self, of reporting in his diary, but Edward House, who wasted no time in expressing just how missed he had been. He wrote, It was impossible for me to attend the opening session of the peace conference. Everyone regretted this more than I. It was merely a repetition of the inter-allied conference of last year, with practically the same personnel, other than the President and the other American delegates, Lansing and White. It is all an old story with me and I would not have gotten any thrills by attending these conferences so far have been devoid of results. House was at least correct in that not much had yet been achieved and much had been kicked down the road. We've seen before that even issues as straightforward as representation or protocol or the to-do list of the conference became disputed questions which were neither addressed before everyone was face-to-face nor addressed with any kind of grace to account for the fact that time was running out. Politeness was still the order of the day, but each day was a new opportunity to feel the strain and note that the onus was on these men to get their act together and, well, act. That same day, Harold Nicholson was noting on his conversation with Arthur Balfour, Britain's foreign secretary and a key member of the five-man British delegation, Balfour complimented Wilson's presence and negotiating skill and noted that he was astonished to find that he was as good in person as he looked on paper. Wilson's attitude at the Big Five meetings, in other words, the Council of Ten or Supreme Council, because having three different names for the same thing is, of course, really fun, was, according to Balfour, firm, modest, restrained, eloquent, well-informed and convincing. When Harold Nicholson raised the issue of the Italian Treaty with Balfour, particularly on the sticky question of whether the Americans would respect it, Balfour made an observation which, in sum, sounded quite promising for the Italians. When, during the war, we were in a bad way, we asked Italy to come in with us at a certain price. She delivered the goods, and if she asks us, we are bound to foot the bill. On the other hand, both we and the Italians have since pledged ourselves to the Wilsonian principles. These principles place our price in a new currency. If the Italians are willing to be paid in this new currency, well and good. If they insist on being paid in the old currency, then we shall have to fulfil the letter of our bond. As Nicholson and Balfour must have known, Vittorio Orlando's government was counting on being paid in the old currency. And contrary to what was said here, the British would defer to Wilson before fulfilling the letter of their bond with the Italians. It was known that Wilson did not much like the idea that Italy had been effectively purchased by the Allies and that she had intervened only to secure certain post-war interests, largely in territory, for herself. What was not appreciated, even if it may have been known, ...was that Italy had only fought and suffered in the war for these gains... ...and if she was not given them, there would be uproar... ...since it would be claimed that the entire bloody exercise had been for naught. It would have been, on the surface, the equivalent to promising to abide by Wilson's 14 points... ...only to spurn them once peace had been made. Wilson expected all treaties which benefited the United States to be honoured. Italy was not to be accorded the same treatment since she fell in the awkward category of an ally, but an ally with uncomfortable requests, that didn't gel with the New World Order that the President was crafting. There would be time enough to dwell on Italy, but on the 21st of January 1919, Russia largely came under the microscope of those assembled at the Catorce once more. Interestingly though, where the Italian shopping list overlapped with the Bolshevik Russians was in the message which Rome's government put out. If Italians were not given what they were owed, it was said, then they would revert to communism out of sheer anger. Italians were not the only power to jump on this idea. In Romania, where portions of Transylvania were occupied, and in Poland, where Lvov was seized, the excuse given was that by so acting, they were halting the spread of Bolshevism. It was merely a happy coincidence that by acting, they also fulfilled the irredentist ambitions which had been harboured for so many years by their populations. Much like this episode, Tuesday the 21st of January was a very long day. Russia dominated proceedings throughout, as every aspect of her situation was pored over by the Council of Ten. This time everyone picked the brains of the former Danish ambassador to Russia, and they seemed impressed by his breadth of knowledge. This ambassador, Skavenius, talked on a range of Russian-related topics, in a level of detail too extensive to unwrap in full here. The forces backing Bolshevism, the strength of the Red Army, the fate of Russia's other political parties, the anti-Bolshevik military forces, the propaganda which the Bolsheviks were making use of, Bolshevism's strength in Germany, Poland and the Ukraine, and most importantly of all, the question of Allied intervention in Russia. The former Danish ambassador, Skvenius, recommended intervention by the Allies at once, reasoning that the longer they waited, the worse the ruin and contamination of the Bolshevik ideology would be. It would only take 100,000 or 150,000 Allied troops at the most, but without these soldiers, the disparate resistance of the other Russian parties would crumble. Skvenius noted that the Bolshevik propaganda was effective since it was painting any Allied intervention as a ploy to turn back the clock and hand the country back to the old Imperial Guard of Tsarist Russia, which consequently also meant taking the land from the peasants and giving it back to the rich. This was a powerful and relevant message and it meant that Allied intervention would have to be couched in propaganda of its own. The Allies should paint their intervention as one which aimed at giving Russians a genuine opportunity at democracy. A failure to act would doom Russians everywhere to suffer under the heel of tyranny or to starve thanks to the wasteful, inefficient bureaucracy which the Soviets had created. Skevenius' plan was laid out in stark terms. By capturing the two main cities, Moscow and Petrograd, the Bolshevik heart would be torn out. It was thus up to the Allies to arrange this campaign. And they had to give it their all, because if they didn't, and they only sent token forces, then these men could just as easily be turned into Bolsheviks. This, Skavenius warned, was what happened to the Germans, after all. This optimistic report was accompanied by an appendix of an interview which had been held between an English journalist and the aforementioned Bolshevik official in Stockholm, Litvinov. Litvinov, as the only real source that the West had to what was going on in Bolshevik Russia, was peppered with questions by this daily news correspondent, and his replies were stored for the perusal of those at the Council of Ten, though it is not known how many read them. Litvinov proclaimed his government's horror at the continuation of war in Russia, and he underlined the exhaustion and suffering of the Russian people who longed for peace. The People's Government, Litvinov, said was eager to make peace and to negotiate with the Allies but the dismantling of the Bolshevik government was not an acceptable basis from which to begin talks. The new regime had only begun to get a handle on the distribution of food and the reduction in anarchic conditions. How many more Russians would need to die if the Allies had their way and this government, this newer government, was now forced to collapse? Litvinov insisted that once peace was made with the Allies, the Bolshevik propaganda in the different allied countries would cease. Such propaganda was only conducted in Germany, Litvinov claimed, because Germany and Russia were still technically at war. This claim, that Russia and Germany were still at war, did the rounds regularly since the armistice in November 1918, and it was based on the idea that because the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk had been repudiated by the German government, as per the terms of the armistice, the war was technically still on between those old enemies. Friedrich Ebert certainly did not consider his government at war with the Soviets. He was far too busy policing post-war Germany to contemplate another campaign to the east. Yet the Russians did make great use out of this idea because it enabled them to steer their propaganda towards the German danger. There was at least a modicum of truth in the claim that the war was still on though because the eastern border between Russia and Germany had never been so ridden with conflict, a fact we'll get to grips with in time. The second half of the appendix for the 21st of January, imagines that with some favorable trade deals and with a fair peace, there was no reason why the Bolshevik government could not be moderated through other more diplomatic or economic means. By sending in Bolshevik moderates, it was even hoped that the regime would swing more towards the right, an immensely optimistic prediction but also an understandable one, considering the fact that nothing like the Soviet Union had ever existed before, and that the Soviet Union didn't even exist at this point, at least not yet. It was also very hard for the Allies to imagine Soviet Russia existing for all that long in one piece. It had come into the world in several pieces. There was very little information available on the strength of the Red Army or the durability of the Bolshevik regime. All the Allies had to go on were reports by men who wanted so badly for Bolshevik Russia to fail and for law and democracy to replace tyranny and despotism, which of course had been cloaked in revolution for the worker. The next meeting on the 21st of January was concerned with finding a solution to the Russian problem through other means. Russia, in the opinion of David Lloyd George, could be pacified if only the different factions in Russia were given a chance to communicate on foreign soil. Lloyd George criticised the fact that all parties apart from the Bolsheviks were being considered for this scheme. There was little point in hosting a conference without inviting the dominant party, regardless of how the Allies felt about this dominant party. George Clemenceau refused to allow the Bolshevik delegates to come to Paris, so an alternative location was suggested for this gathering of Russian leaders. Wilson urged concessions be made, that it be clearly communicated they had no intention of re-establishing the Tsar's regime and that the Allies act in unison to send a clear message. Lloyd George then showed his teeth in a sense. Evidently, he was frustrated at the vagueness of Wilson's stance, where the President had admitted, after all, that he was sorry he could not offer a practical solution. The British Prime Minister then insisted that since only force could crush Bolshevism, what forces could the other Allies offer? Britain already had nearly 20,000 men in Russia by this point, a legacy of the Allied intervention to save Russia from an ignominious peace or collapse which had obviously failed. If the Bolsheviks had 300,000 soldiers, then the Allied and Russian Coalition Army would need at least 400,000 to succeed. Where were these men to come from, and who was to feed and supply them? Volunteers, Vittorio Orlando said. Lloyd George respectfully disagreed, rightfully underlining just how sick of war everyone was. It was hard to imagine anyone being animated by anything at this stage, except by the promise of peace. The Italian foreign minister agreed with this, and he declared that moral force was thus the only option open to combating Bolshevism's spread. A so-called cordon sanitaire, effectively a belt of nations which would box Bolshevism in in the East, this idea was put forward. And along with the commitment to gather the non-Bolshevik elements of the country together, this strategy was agreed to. Wilson, ever the fair dealer, asked the until now completely silent Japanese for their opinions on the matter. The Japanese simply echoed the conclusions and added their belief that Bolshevism should not be humoured in any way in any negotiations which followed. Bolshevism must not be allowed to have a platform where it could appear legitimate and Wilson added to this that the different allied countries should report back to their home governments where dealing with Russia was concerned. Lloyd George added the dissatisfying note that more should be said on Russia in the future evidently solving the Russian problem, was more difficult than had been expected. In the space of a day, the Allies had flip-flopped and changed their positions repeatedly before reverting to the original position. It was almost as though the whole thing had been a giant waste of time. With Russia placed on the back burner and everyone's views taken into account, it seemed only right to examine the next item on the agenda for the afternoon of the 21st of January. It was now that Clemenceau expressed his anxiety to deal urgently with the formula of the conference. It was essential, said the French Premier, that first the League of Nations and then the question of reparations be discussed and some decisions made now so that when the plenary conference was gathered, they had some progress to present and decisions to debate upon. The process of appointing an international committee, made up of two members of each of the five delegates, Seemed like a recipe for additional paperwork, but this was approved of and planned for the next day. In addition, the situation in Poland would have to be considered, and its status appeared increasingly urgent, surrounded as it was by Bolshevik forces in the Ukraine and Russia. Fatigue following the Russian question meant that all agreed to resume these urgent questions the next day, though. Urgent though they were, these men needed their rest when pondering and pontificating over such complex and serious questions as these. The 22nd of January meeting opened at 11am in the Quai d'Orsay and the topic of conversation was focused immediately onto Poland. Polish auxiliaries resided, ready to go, in France and with some preparation, in Italy too. It was imperative that these soldiers, some 20,000 men, arrived in Danzig, Gdansk, to hold it as per the image of Poland then being devised. Marshal Ferdinand Foch was on hand for his opinion on what he thought the Poles would do. Foch opined that the Poles were working in too many different directions, and with the threat of the Bolsheviks apparently imminent, the Allied command in that country should be centralised. How long would that take, Clemenceau wondered, and could Poland be stabilised in time? It could, Foch said, if everything was arranged to take place at the same time. Poles would land at Danzig, would hold out in Posen, would resist the Bolsheviks in the east, and would hold out in Galicia in the south, all with Allied support and materials or money as was possible to give. In these circumstances, Foch said, Poland could be saved and her situation and position bolstered within a month. Predictably enough, divisions were then exposed among the Allies. Arthur Balfour, British Foreign Secretary, spoke up first, He noted that it would be immensely difficult to persuade the Poles to hold back and not attack, even for a month, and to centralise their operations under Allied command would present a further challenge. Since the end of the war, Balfour correctly noted, the Poles had been grabbing anything that wasn't nailed down and calling it Polish, even in places like Eastern Galicia, which did not desire to be Polish. Balfour was of the opinion that the Polish delegates present in Paris should be summoned to the Supreme Council and given a stern talking to so that they'd restrain their comrades. Woodrow Wilson agreed with Balfour that the Poles had been hasty, but he added another concern. The influx of Poles into Danzig would certainly upset the Germans, who had little inkling of the concrete intentions of the Allies to hand a Polish corridor over to Poland, save for a reference to it in the 13th of Wilson's 14 points the act could well result in a resumption of the war if the Allies tried to sponsor the Poles taking all this territory. Foch also voiced his concern at this and said that the clearer the Allies were to the Germans, the more likely Ebert's government was to exceed. But the mysterious manoeuvres and the sudden arrival of a load of Poles at Danzig was sure to cause uproar. Confusing though the situation in Eastern Europe was, the minutes of this meeting demonstrate that all involved were not completely in the dark and that they were not naive or unsure about what the likes of Poland, Romania and Serbia were doing in this power vacuum. It was clear as day that these minor three allied powers were taking it upon themselves to seize by force what they could grab in time for any conference that made a final decision on their national borders. Wilson opposed this approach wholeheartedly, as the minutes of the meeting make apparent. The President said, The Romanians, for instance, were taking action of a similar kind. The Serbians were also behaving towards Montenegro in what appeared to me to be a questionable manner. The Hungarians were also trying to bring about a fait accompli before the termination of the Congress. If we were to say to the Poles, you must hold your hand, the same must be said to the rest they must all be told that they prejudiced their case by premature action. If you had to take a thing by force, the inference was that it did not belong to you. It was Lloyd George who urged the most caution with regards to Poland. What he wanted was some kind of fact-finding mission to ascertain what the situation was on the ground in Poland. The transportation either of soldiers or of weapons designed for these soldiers Was bound to upset Germany, and Lloyd George said, Fairness was due even to the enemy. To act now would mean to blunder into a volatile situation, and to make it worse, it would be wise instead to establish some form of independent commission within Poland to report back to the conference. This, in the end, the creation of an independent commission in Poland, was what was agreed on. Lloyd George exclaimed that once the situation in Poland was confirmed, he would be happy to approve the transfer of these Poles back home. Until that moment came, though, he would refuse to countenance the provocation of the Germans or the exacerbation of Polish instability. The understanding was that this independent commission, constituted of delegates from the four major powers, since Japan said it did not wish to send any delegates when asked, would turn Polish attention away from any military theatre other than the Bolsheviks, Thus, the Russian question was returned to by proxy. If they could not defeat Russia militarily, and if the fate of the Allied intervention there was in flux, then they could at least contain Russia's expansion by implementing the first phase of the Cordon Sanitaire. After the break for lunch, the Supreme Council resumed and launched almost immediately into a discussion about Russia again. The preferred statement, a long and winding one, effectively invited all factions representing Russia to a conference on the Prince's Islands in the Sea of Marmor, and so long as peace between the various factions within the Russian Civil War was maintained, all such factions would be welcome. This solves the problem of bringing a Bolshevik representative too close to Paris, where it was feared that it might be construed as an approval or legitimization by the Allied powers of that form of government. Here, distant from the deliberations of the French capital, the Russian factions could talk among themselves far from the vulnerable hearts and minds of Western Europe. The statement was rounded off with the usual exclamations of friendship towards the Russian people and the lack of interest the Western allies had in seizing any Russian goods, peoples or lands. With the Russian approach sorted, it was time at last to discuss the League of Nations. Evidently, preparations had been made in the meantime, as David Lloyd George was able to read out a draft of the preliminary resolutions of the League from the very beginning. These resolutions, it was said, would help to advise the committee which was soon to be created to sort out the League. In turn, this committee would then draft the final constitution or covenant of the League of Nations. It was, typically enough for 1919, a long-winded way to reach a goal. But what were these resolutions? Well, let's have a look. Before we have a look at these resolutions, I need to remind you guys that this podcast is, this very long podcast episode is, brought to you by The Delegation Game. Nearly 40 people have signed up to play The Delegation Game, and you can too, simply by paying $6 a month, sending me a form detailing the... ...ins and outs of your character. It's a very easy form, it takes about 20 seconds to fill out, don't you worry. And then you'll be well on your way to Paris. We have so much stuff going on already. Several different chats have already sprung up in the Facebook Messenger app... ...and it's a very handy way to keep track of all the different things that are going on. A new proposal has been put forward... ...purely by the independent work of all the different delegates that are involved that aims to bring a devolved government for Ireland. And since the dice roll said it was passed, this means that on Friday's episode, I'll be dealing with, well, devolved government for Ireland in this alternative interactive history that we are dealing with. It's gonna be very interesting to see how that all transpires. So if you're interested in seeing how alternative history pans out, then make sure you do listen to the latest episode of The Delegation Game, which of course comes out every Friday, normally Friday afternoon, because everything is just so up in the air at the moment and I don't have any free time at all to speak of. However, if you would like to have a role in shaping events like these, and maybe you'd like to develop your own treaty proposal as well, and organize all these different delegates to vote for it, then you should sign up to the delegation game so you can have a role personally. It's something I would definitely recommend. I have seen so many fantastic things happen already in the delegation game, and I'm so excited to see what happens next. It's probably one of the best things I've ever thought of doing, apart from this podcast full stop of course, but as far as I know there's no such thing as podcast role-playing and I'm still looking to copyright it if any lawyers out there want to give me a hand in doing that. The Delegation Game is something which you can find all the information about simply by clicking the link in the description below or by going to wdfpodcast.com forward slash delegation game by signing up You will be taking part, you will be engaging with the source material, you will be imagining a brand new world where things might have been differently, you'll be talking to some super nerdy history friends along the way, and of course, you'll be helping make history thrive by supporting this podcast. In any case, guys, let's get back to the episode. So what were these resolutions of the League of Nations, which had been developed in the background? Well, Resolution A said that it was essential to the maintenance of the World Settlement, which the associated nations are meant to establish, that a League of Nations be created to promote international cooperation, to ensure the fulfillment of accepted international obligations, and to provide safeguards against war. Fair enough, that's basically collective security expressed in a different way, As for Resolution B, it was expressed that This League should be created as an integral part of the General Treaty of Peace and should be open to every civilised nation which can be relied upon to promote its object. that's an important development because Resolution B basically expressed that the Treaty of Versailles would be kind of... It would be a dual treaty. One half would have Peace of Germany foremost in mind. The other half would deal with the fact that the League of Nations now existed so to pass the Treaty of Versailles would mean to pass the League of Nations into law. Of course, at this stage, the Allies didn't know they were creating the Treaty of Versailles, but hopefully you get what I'm trying to say here. Resolution C. The members of the League should periodically meet for international conferences and should have a permanent organisation and secretariat to carry on the business of the League in the intervals between the conferences. Again, this is a fair enough ruling. Everyone can't meet at all times, So when it's not possible to meet, a proper staff of civil servants, etc. should be able to handle the busy work. There was much to unpack within these three resolutions, but perhaps the most significant in time would be that found in Resolution B, which effectively baked the League of Nations into the Treaty of Peace, which in time would mean the Treaty of Versailles. This, of course, would mean, as we said, that to approve the Treaty of Versailles would mean to approve of the League of Nations, a fact which Wilson's peers back home were soon to find problematic, and which Wilson was ultimately to find fatal to his aspirations and vision. The first to speak up about all these resolutions were the normally quiet Japanese, whose delegate noted that he fully appreciated the gravity of the situation, and to do each of these terms justice, he would have to await further instructions from his government back in Japan before agreeing to anything. This, if the American president wasn't aware, was what the American delegation could have done when it was confronted with difficult resolutions. However, because the American president was here and right in front of everyone, there was no chance that the president would be able to say, hold on, I need to consult my government, when he was, well, the leader of America and answered for that country. Britain, France and the United States in their turn, all engaged in some barely-veiled criticism of this response. It was the most which the Japanese had said since arriving, and the response they got in turn didn't exactly bode well for future negotiations. After all this though, Wilson moved to protect his vision, and he argued that only the great powers should be in a position to draft the constitution of the League, before inviting the smaller powers to debate its contents. Following some back and forth with Lloyd George, this was altered so that the five great powers would themselves nominate ten delegates, and that the smaller powers altogether would nominate five. These fifteen delegates would then have the power to create the foundations for the League of Nations. It was automatically assumed, of course, that Wilson would play a starring role in the construction of those foundations, but Wilson would not accept this, as he believed it would be too cumbersome. So again Lloyd George took to the floor and expressed the burning fact of the moment, that being that numerous delegations were milling around Paris, having been invited by these great powers, and yet they'd been given nothing to do. At this exclusion from constructing the League of Nations, many were growing restless and frustrated, which cast a dark shadow over the good intentions that the Paris Peace Conference was supposed to represent. This argument, this line of thinking and expressing the dangers of what would happen if everyone continued to ignore the smaller powers, it seemed to do the trick. All would gather for a plenary peace conference on Saturday the 25th of January, a full week since the conference had originally opened. While all were in session, the latest draft of the League of Nations would be presented to all the assembled nations. No voting would be allowed, but Lloyd George suggested that the process be worded so that everyone felt important. If any state had objections, they would be told that their dissent could be registered. After this meeting, then the ten great power delegates and five small power delegates would meet and conclude on the final form which the League of Nations constitution would take. In such a way did the apparently simple League idea become Byzantine in complexity and organisation. Yet, as Lloyd George insisted, and was probably right, it was vital to include everyone if the League were to be given a proper blessing by everyone. The rest of the meeting was taken up by discussions about an international labour conference, but by now it was late in the day. The topic of reparations was brought up, almost for the sake of preparing for the next day, and again, the divisions of the Allies were revealed, as the reparations' commission, and who should have representation, and how much representation they could have, predictably became sticking points gradually it was decided that the five great powers would have three delegates on the reparations commission and that Belgium, Romania, Poland, Serbia and Greece would have two apiece this reparations commission would decide on how much money the defeated would pay Wilson asked that indemnity be replaced by the term reparations since it sounded gentler basically and Lloyd George agreed that so long as one was allowed to interpret reparations in its widest terms this was okay These cracks were all ironed over, and it was agreed they would meet again the next morning with the reparations issue top of the agenda. As was so often the case with these meetings, when all gathered the next morning on the 23rd of January, they delved into what was then the more relevant question, rather than follow the plan which had been set before. For the next two days, the issue of German disarmament was a hot topic, but the 23rd of January was also a jack-of-all-trades kind of day too, and hosted only a single morning meeting in spite of the sense of urgency. With the commission for the League of Nations determined, and the two delegates from each of the five powers nominated to serve, there was at least some concrete work done. Then the discussion moved on the 23rd towards Germany. The conundrum facing the Allies was a formidable one. The Germans had to be kept under pressure with military force, so it was important, therefore, that the Allies did not demobilize until the final peace arrangement had been concluded. However, Lloyd George voiced his concern at Britain's inability to maintain so many hundreds of thousands of soldiers on the continent when so many wished to return home yesterday. As far as these soldiers were concerned, they were merely sitting still, not doing much of anything, and discontent was bound to increase, not to mention the cost of maintaining so many men was bound to increase on French and German soil. In response, Lloyd George asked that Germany be talked to and asked how many soldiers she needed to defend herself. The recent events of the Spartacist uprising were taken into account, but to Woodrow Wilson, the situation in Germany confirmed that they had to tread carefully. If Germany was asked to demobilise further, then these demobilised men would just enter the ranks of the unemployed, and place a further strain upon the beleaguered country's ability to sustain so many men. This, Wilson feared, would facilitate Germany's slip into Bolshevism. Thus, where Lloyd George saw it essential that Germany be demobilised to prevent Britain having to foot the large bill for its forces, Wilson wished Germany to feel secure and keep its army intact, since it was demoralised and comparatively small, as far as armies go, in any case, and to disarm Germany further would surely make the spread of Bolshevism possible. After all, Wilson could reasonably point out that Germany was far from stable, and Friedrich Siebert was cracking down on the communists, and it didn't need additional difficulties to be made for it. There was a brief moment when reparations were discussed. The following text was adopted. That a commission be appointed with not more than three representatives apiece from each of the five great powers, and not more than two representatives apiece from Belgium, Greece, Poland, Romania and Serbia, to examine and report first on the amount for reparation which the enemy countries ought to pay, Secondly, on what they are capable of paying. And thirdly, on the method, form and time in which payment should be made. Next, it was time to discuss the breaches of the laws of war. And wouldn't you know it, they needed a commission to accomplish this too. Two reps from each of the main powers and five reps from all of the small powers would be elected to discuss the following critically important issues as a body and make recommendations based on their findings you'll recognize several of these points as later sources for controversy, especially for the Germans. Point one, the responsibility of the authors of the war. Point two, the facts as to breaches of the laws and customs of war committed by the forces of the German Empire and their allies on land, on sea and in the air during the present war. Point three, the degree of responsibility for these offenses, attaching to particular members of the Allied forces, including members of the general staffs or other individuals, however highly placed. Point 4. The constitution and procedure of a tribunal appropriate to the trial of these offences. Point 5. Any other matters, cognate or ancillary, to the above which may arise in the course of the inquiry and which the Commission find it useful and relevant to take into consideration. In preparation for the plenary conference in two days, where the League of Nations will be properly presented and assessed by all present, It was important that the smaller powers and others made their case plain to the Supreme Council. Lloyd George agreed that this should be so, but made the point that European questions were so contentious that they would take some time to resolve. So in the meantime, there should be provisions made for solving the questions of the Far East, the Levant and Africa. Woodrow Wilson objected, perhaps thinking that Lloyd George wanted to gobble up the colonies while he had the chance. But Lloyd George reiterated again that He wasn't discounting the importance of European questions, he was merely saying that since European questions were bound to take so long to resolve, they may as well sort out the less contentious colonial questions first. Clemenceau then interjected, supported by the Italians, and reasoned that since they had so much work to get through, it would be wise to give the other delegations some kind of deadline. What he proposed was that all those who had some kind of claim to territory or rights should submit these claims within 10 days so that the council of 10 could consider them an appropriate time. This was agreed to and then finally to round off the morning meeting it was proposed that two more commissions should be set up. The first to control international waterways and frame any new laws which might concern them and the second to discuss the question of public debt and how that might interfere with the payment of reparations all agreed to this further widening of the Paris Peace Conference's bureaucracy and all agreed to meet early in the next morning, the last day before the plenary peace conference, to run through additional discussions about German disarmament and the interests of the Dominions. The meeting which opened on the 24th of January, that is Friday, the day before that big Saturday when the League of Nations was going to be presented to the world, it was a shade different to its predecessors. To begin with, this wasn't a meeting of the Council of Ten, but of the Supreme War Council. The difference was expressed not just by the fact that these people couldn't make any real treaties or anything, but also by the sheer number of senior military personnel, which the minutes record as present for the meeting, still taking place at the Quai d'Orsay at 10.30am. The reason for the military tone of the meeting was its subject matter, the German problem, how to demobilise her. How many soldiers would be needed to guard against a German resurgence and how many soldiers did each side have? All important questions in their own right. The previous day Lloyd George had not wanted to comment on the availability of British or Empire soldiers until he had been advised by his military and technical advisers. Now they were present in the room, along with their American, French and Italian counterparts. The Japanese simply attended as normal, perhaps reflecting their lack of interest in German disarmament or the German question full stop, except for when it had anything to do with Asia. Marshal Ferdinand Foch opened with a long statement on the relative strength of the Allies in comparison to the Germans. At the most, it was believed that Germany still possessed 800,000 men in arms in comparison to the Allied 1.8 million. The latter figure counted virtually all personnel of an even remotely military nature, from engineers to chefs, and it included everyone from Belgium to Canada. Lloyd George, predictably enough, immediately had problems with the number, especially when Foch opined that the British should maintain some 350,000 men. It soon became apparent, after a bit of spiffing and spatting around, that 1.8 million was by far the more positive interpretation of the Allied capabilities, and this number continued to dwindle every month. What the meeting boiled down to was tension between the two distinct ideas about how to deal with post-war Germany. To Lloyd George, the best approach was to include a provision in the next Renewal Treaty of the Armistice, due in three weeks, whereby Germany would be asked to demobilise her forces extensively. This would, in turn, limit the defensive or military pressure required on the Allied side. The minutes revealed Foch's alternative viewpoint. If I correctly understand Mr. Lloyd George's proposal, it meant that an effective demobilisation should be imposed on Germany. There would be no difficulty in adding such a clause to the armistice. The Germans would no doubt accept it, but it would be extremely difficult to ensure its execution. In a country like Germany, it would be very easy for the people to take up arms again. Should a real leader arise, it would not be difficult for him to construct the armies from scratch. Trained men, officers, staffs and a skeleton organisation did still exist, In a short time it will be possible to have a good army in splendid fighting form. In my opinion, therefore, such a clause could no doubt be included in the armistice, but it would be ineffective. To this, Foch added additional points, that even if some kind of control mechanism was placed over Germany, the Germans would hide their soldiers if they had to. The Allies could never ensure the neutralization of all German power, and Germany would present the picture it wanted to show. Foch even reminded those present of the Treaties of Tilsit from 1807, where the Prussian army was reduced to 40,000 men, but still some had managed to raise a levee en masse in the hundreds of thousands. If the Germans intended to deceive this order, then they would do so, Foch said. Thus, the only protection against such deception was to ensure that the Allies remained armed to the teeth at all times. Woodrow Wilson struck a more middle-of-the-road approach, He noted that French concerns compelled them to remain heavily armed, but he also added that there would come a time when Germany would have to be trusted again if any of this was going to work. To Lloyd George, he reiterated the point from the previous day that by demobilising too many German soldiers at once, they would simply be adding to the unemployment line, and thus the appeal of Bolshevism would increase. This time the President added that the best way to protect what had been achieved so far would be to proceed to a final peace deal with the Germans let the military remain in place, and let us all hurry to sign an agreement which sets in stone the end of war. Wilson said that it would be impossible to maintain Allied soldiers in Europe indefinitely out of fear of what the Germans may or may not do in the future. The best solution was to wait until after the peace was signed to sort out army sizes, but Lloyd George insisted he couldn't wait that long and that he would have to consult his military advisers in the room before promising if even the current status quo could continue. The opinions of the generals and commanders who stood behind the leaders in the room only served to muddy the waters further. Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force, did not believe that Germany would be in a position to mobilise its men for a new chapter of the war, considering what he had seen about the scattered state of its forces. Douglas Haig believed that they would, and he did not see the numbers suggested by Foch as too excessive. He believed that until the final peace was made, the pressure should be maintained, Italy's general staff then weighed in, asking if it would not be wise to simply destroy Germany's war-making capabilities in its factories, mines or elsewhere to guard against a resumption of the war by ridding Germany of her military potential. Italy, General Diaz explained, was greatly strained by her commitments to maintain an Italian army along the Austrian border and she wanted to see these commitments reduced just like Britain did. Wilson then added another two cents of his own, reasoning that he agreed with Pershing and he didn't believe a German resurgence was possible certainly not an organized war effort at the present time because the matter was so sensitive and because time was of the essence Wilson suggested that a draft resolution over what to do about the German situation would be drawn up by wouldn't you just know it a new committee the twofold mission of this special committee was then outlined one The strength of the armies to be maintained by the Allies and associated powers on the Western Front during the period of the armistice should be made known. 2. The demobilization of the German army and the guarantees, e.g. surrender of arms, seizure of munitions, factories, etc., necessary to ensure the fulfillment of the conditions imposed, should be made known as well. As a final note to the whole debate, Foch said that it would be most important for the heads of the different Allied militaries to gather regularly and receive regular updates on the actual numbers of men at their disposal. Vittorio Orlando agreed with this, but he added that the smaller powers should also be asked about their military strength, since the former states of Austria-Hungary continued to build up their militaries, which was only leading to greater tension, Woodrow Wilson agreed, and said that if all would break for an hour, he would produce a statement which could be submitted to these expanding eastern powers, in an effort to institute a sense of calm in the region, and to make it clear where they all stood. Wilson wished the signal to be clear, if the minor or emerging powers in the east continued to harness the use of force to take what they wanted, then when it came time to present their case to the Supreme Council, this case would be greatly disadvantaged. The memo that deals with this issue, which Wilson developed, is worth detailing in full. It said, The governments now associated in conference to effect a lasting peace among the nations are deeply disturbed by the news which comes to them of the many instances in which armed force is being made use of, in many parts of Europe and the East, to gain possession of territory, the rightful claim to which the peace conference is to be asked to determine. They deem it their duty to utter a solemn warning that possession gained by force will seriously prejudice the claims of those who use such means. It will create the presumption that those who employ force doubt the validity of their claim and purpose to substitute proof of right and set up sovereignty by coercion rather than by racial or national preference and natural historical association. They thus put a cloud upon every evidence of title that they may afterwards allege and indicate their distrust of the conference itself. Nothing but the most unfortunate results can ensue. If they expect justice, they must refrain from force and place their claims in unclouded good faith in the hands of the Conference of Peace. When the meeting resumed at 3pm, it was mostly known what would be on the agenda. Talk about colonies, this newfangled idea called mandates, and the appeals of the dominions about expansion and annexation. Beginning with talk on the German colonies, Lloyd George argued that Germany had shown herself unfit to rule her subject peoples, having made use of a policy of extermination in German Southwest Africa, which was true, and having whipped the natives there into a frenzy so that these natives behaved in a manner which would disgrace even the Bolsheviks, which, well, wasn't really all that true. Granted, Britain had colonies in the region too, and had raised troops along with France, But they had controlled them better, Lloyd George said. Wilson, the Italians and Japanese all agreed to the principle that Germany's colonies in the Pacific or in Africa should not be returned. I mean, of course they would, because they fully expected to get these lands themselves. Lloyd George next entered into significant territory, the discussion of the mandate's idea. There were, Lloyd George said, two approaches which could be adopted when ruling over these German colonies. The first was to place them under the trusteeship of the League. The second was to appoint a mandatory power which represented the League and ruled the colony in her name. Lord George claimed that the first option was far too cumbersome and unrealistic. Better instead that a single power represent the League by dealing fairly and openly with the new territories. It would be guarantees that the mandated territory would be equally open to all, that natives would not be taken advantage of, and that a complaints procedure through the League of Nations would be could be pursued if these principles were not met. Lloyd George added that this description of the mandate system was not dissimilar to the traditional British Empire way of doing things, especially in regards to the free trade principles, which removed all tariffs and opened the resources of each territory up to private enterprise. Lloyd George added that where the mandate system would not apply was in matters pertaining to the Dominions and the lands which had been seized from the Germans by New Zealand, Australian and South African forces. The Prime Minister then gave a brief introduction to each case. New Guinea had been partitioned between several powers before 1914, one of them Australia, another being Germany. Now that the German portion had been taken by the Australians, it didn't make much sense to establish then a mandates system which might rule the two portions of New Guinea differently. Instead, it made economic and strategic sense to annex the region into Australia's orbit. For New Zealand, that small country had expanded a great deal during the war in spite of her small population, and the acquisition of Samoa was a boon to her fortunes. However, so indebted was the New Zealand government that she would not be able to afford to rule Samoa as a mandate, and if she were forced, she would have to vacate the islands altogether and they would fall into anarchy. As far as South Africa was concerned, the portions of Africa which had been captured from Germany were, it was argued, 200 developed and remote to be permitted to exist as mandated territories. It made far more economic and strategic sense to fold these new territories into the existing South African administration. Lloyd George thus went around in circles in the space of just half an hour, on the one hand explaining why mandates were such a great idea, and on the other, explaining why their restrictive qualities could not possibly apply to these dominions or the empire in these situations. Instead, the Prime Minister said it made much more sense to simply consider the annexations of the Dominions now as part of these Dominions rather than as part of a new community of mandated powers. It was then the turn for the impassioned pleas of the Australian, New Zealand and South African Premiers to be heard regarding their cases which would surely bolster what Lloyd George had just said. In each case, the Dominions' contribution towards the war was emphasised to further support their case. Now, we may be tempted to see these Dominions as well-behaved children, further expanding the overall written procedure of the Union Jack in the territories of former foes. There was certainly an element of this, but as the Canadian Premier noted, the reality was less straightforwardly imperialistic than it may appear. Those Dominions, said... Canadian Premier Sir Robert Borden, were autonomous nations with an empire which might properly be called itself a League of Nations. I realise that the British Empire occupies a large part of the world, but the prejudice raised by the word empire might be dispelled by considering the matter from the angle I have just suggested. One is drawn to the fact that there had been up to this point no mention of Ireland or its unfolding situation. This suggests that either nobody wanted to offend Lloyd George or that nobody knew anything about what had happened in Dublin since the 21st of January, or perhaps both. In any case, in future episodes, we will see that, much like other aspects of the Paris Peace Conference, notions of justice and self-determination for dominions were conditional upon whether they were acceptable to the great powers or not, because of Ireland's awkward status as well, as not a dominion but part of the home islands but also not treated... Historically, as well as the likes of Scotland or Wales, the leaders of the great powers skirted conveniently around the difficulty by declaring the Irish matter a domestic or civil British question and none of their business. If you were wondering what might happen if they did decide it was their business and if they passed a motion at this stage giving Ireland devolved government, the reminder to all of you that we'll be looking exactly how this would have been dealt with in our delegation game, because a Canadian minister by the name of Joe Daugherty managed to pass a proposal which provided for devolved government for Ireland and for a representative from the nationalist and unionist communities to attend. Anyway, with that, by the late afternoon on the 24th of January, the Supreme Council was ready to wrap up following assurances and thanks from George Clemenceau. The next day, the entirety of the delegates will be present for the second plenary session as the League of Nations was presented before the world. One could be forgiven for asking why, considering the gravity of the moment, more time had not been spent determining what the League of Nations would look like, or how it would conduct its business. These tasks were all to be decided properly the next day, with Woodrow Wilson and his ally House near at hand. For Wilson's dream to be realised, it was vital that he got the League of Nations right. The great test The next great test, and a long list of great tests, was soon to begin.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.